Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Wednesday at 9 p.m. RPM's about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Yo, what's good, New York? This is Jack Devine, he, him pronouns, and you are listening to Revolutions Per Minute, live on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're a socialist radio show and podcast for members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. DSA is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with more than 85,000 members nationwide. And NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 7,000-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. In this age of relentless corporate media propaganda, working-class media institutions that are actually rooted in the socialist movement are crucial for the struggles ahead. Tonight, Marion Jones and Sarah Leonard join us to discuss their new socialist feminist publication, Lux Magazine. We'll hear about how Lux came about through organizing and why its socialist feminist analysis not only helps us understand the crises we're living through, but provides an intellectual framework to build a better world. But first, the headlines with Simone Norman. Only 34% of the city's supply of the COVID-19 vaccine has been used, with some having even been thrown away. After Mayor de Blasio put blame on the governor's strict eligibility rules, Cuomo announced that Phase 1B, which includes patients age 75 and over, as well as education workers, first responders, public transit workers, and safety workers, will begin today. Several of the factors for the slow rollout cited by de Blasio seem to contradict earlier statements from his own administration. The city will open five 24-hour COVID vaccine sites as it scales up its vaccination operation. Overnight subway service will remain suspended despite calls from transit advocates and some elected officials to restore service in order to support the overnight vaccination effort. In response to the January 6th Capitol riot, NYC DSA organized a protest of several thousand that marched from the Barclays Center to Chuck Schumer's house. A participant in the Capitol riot was identified as Aaron Mostovsky, the son of Brooklyn Supreme Court Judge Slomo Mostovsky and brother of Brooklyn Conservative Party figurehead Nachman Mostovsky. A coalition made up of NYC DSA, unions, and other progressive organizations in New York State formally launched a campaign to pass the Invest in Our New York Act, a package of six bills designed to raise over $50 billion in revenue by taxing the rich. Democratic control of the U.S. Senate will likely result in an increase of federal aid to states, and Cuomo has made statements suggesting he's rethinking his approach to the 2021 budget as a result. 
A limited pilot project in Brownsville pulled NYPD cops from their posts and replaced them with community-led violence interrupter groups. The city's Department of Health has partnered with chain pharmacies in neighborhoods seriously affected by fentanyl overdoses to provide free naloxone over-the-counter. Governor Cuomo announced plans to legalize recreational marijuana use in 2021, just as he announced plans to do so in 2020 and 2019. Ross Barkan covered the ambitions of the new class of socialist and progressive state legislators in 2021. The legal aid attorneys at Queens Defenders announced a plan to unionize following a trend in public defenders' offices around the city. Management has been hostile so far. Finally, NYPD Commissioner DeMott Shea has tested positive for COVID-19. In election news, State Senator Brian Benjamin's Comptroller campaign will return almost $6,000 of donations after a report revealed that several of his listed donors never recalled donating money. The first major candidate forum in Brooklyn's Council District 35 race was marked by tension between former District Leader Renee Collymore and Crystal Hudson regarding Hudson's relationship with outgoing Council member Lori Cumbo. DSA endorsed Michael Hollingsworth will participate in part two of the forum today. Ahead of announcing his mayoral campaign, Andrew Yang is facing questions about his decision to leave the city during the spring COVID-19 outbreak. And finally, nine Democratic candidates for mayor attended an online forum hosted by Uptown Community Democrats. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group, covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethorn.nyc. So tonight's uh, show, we are uh, bringing on two of our fellow comrades in the uh, struggle for working class media institutions. Uh, Marion and Sarah are with us tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. For- mm-hmm. So, um, uh, Marion, I'll let you take this question first. We always like to, you know, have our audience get to know the the people that we are bringing on air. And uh, this is kind of the context in which they've gotten involved in the movement. So what social forces propelled you into the socialist movement? Why did you join DSA specifically? And what type of organizing work have you been engaged in? Um, Yeah, I really like this question. Um, For me, growing up as a Black woman from a kind of lower income background, definitely politicized me. Both of my parents are immigrants. And growing up, you know, I really felt like both of them were, well, my, my mom especially was just a really good, hardworking person. And watching her, you know, struggle so much. And she owned her own store growing up that went out of business and actually owned two different iterations of a store that didn't work. And watching her struggle was really hard and definitely made me question the system. Watching her um, you know, getting pulled over by the by the police and all the things that being, you know, kind of black and working class. Um, why I joined DSA specifically? Yeah, I joined DSA around the same time as a lot of people did um, after the 2016 election. Um, I went to grad school here in the city and was involved with the grad student union here. And I really liked that community. I really liked working with other like-minded people. And after I finished school, I wanted to join another organization to keep um, organizing with people and working. So I joined NYCDSA. And then from there, I got really involved in political education stuff. Also kind of coming off of grad school, 
Um, and from there, I met Sarah, one of the first people um, I met in DSA, who was doing the Intro to Sock Femme reading group. Um, and I thought that was such a fun project. I remember I went to all the sessions and just talked more than anyone because I was so excited just to be um, in an environment to talk about these ideas. And that was so much more relaxed than being in a classroom. We were just excited about socialism and talking. Um, and from then, I went on to do a bunch of political education stuff um, in the Socialist Feminist Working Group here in our chapter that I'm really proud of. So that's my background. Yeah. You, you hit on so many uh, interesting things, like the, or I guess uh, probably shared experiences that a lot of people who get pushed into the movement, one kind of hitting in your background and uh, dealing with both the economic hardships and the realities of racism in this country. And then also kind of how being involved in organization, in your case, being involved in a graduate a student's union, have being engaged in uh, struggle and uh, working together in solidarity can kind of really help build up like a, a sort of socialist politics and, and propel you to get further and further involved. Uh, Sarah, I, I direct this, these same uh, questions uh, to you. Well, I sort of came to political consciousness um, around the time of the Iraq war, which was pretty influential for me. And at that time, you know, it was pretty clear. I had always been kind of a political kid, like a political teen um, and like deeply into punk, but also the only politics that appeared to be on offer was Democrats. Um, and at some point in college, you know, it was very, very clear. It was the Bush administration the Republicans were starting wars overseas and they were horrific, but it was very clear that the Democrats were Republican light and the things that were being talked about in terms of tax breaks for the rich and so forth, the Democrats were just absolutely useless. And I sort of found myself casting around for a politics that actually made sense to me. And it sort of emerged that those politics were socialist. I mean, this is like a teen on the internet um, and the, at that time, you know, this would have been about 2008, something like that. The only socialism I saw around was people on campus. There'd always be a few people, um, who would like hand you a socialist newspaper and then ask for a dollar and the newspaper was bad. And I was like, I can't, I don't think this is my community. Um, and I, by chance sort of came across Dissent Magazine, where I then started working during and then after college. Tiny, tiny office. And that was where I really got my political training. And Dissent had always been very close to DSA, the bridge being Michael Harrington. And so I, at some point, joined DSA, but that was still the time when DSA was very, very small and much, much less active than it is now. And there wasn't actually a lot to do because there wasn't really a critical mass of people. And that all changed starting with Occupy. And, you know, as part of Occupy, along with many, many other New Yorkers, and that was when it started to feel like there might be a rising and coherent left in this country. And we weren't just keeping the flame of socialism, but there was actually an opening for socialism. And so since then, I've been involved in different, often sort of the media side of, of different political projects. I worked on the Occupy Gazette, for example, because 
all the mainstream media demonized Occupy and we, we wanted to show Occupy to the world and to itself as the real force that it was with, with a sort of diversity of ideas and approaches. Um, and I, I could talk more about media work, but, but these days, you know, I, I worked on political education and DSA, which was so, so, so exciting because so many new people joined. I was like, okay, here's something I can do. You know, I have read the books, like I can set this up. Um, and that was, that was incredibly fun, exactly as Marion was just describing. Um, and these days, you know, I had the pleasure of, you know, joining that march from the Barclay Center that was mentioned in the headlines. Um, and I do organizing in my neighborhood and um, against gentrification and also with, with Haven that puts up abortion patients in New York. Um, so sort of a range of different things. Yeah, I mean, I, what you hit on in sort of kind of starting uh, your your personal uh, timeline and transformation with the Iraq war, I think, is something that a, a lot of other people um, who are in the movement now have become the critical of capitalism and imperialism. That was kind of, I think, a, a really game-changing moment. It really uh, opened people's eyes to the brutality of uh, U.S. empire and what the society uh, really is. And then I think also hitting upon Occupy, that was definitely a moment where people really started to conceive of an alternative. Um, and I think uh, DSA is playing a huge role in kind of um, really bringing that uh, into full organizational form, uh, this kind of this socialist politics that has appealed to you for a long time, but is now this organization is is really, really uh, building up its numbers and size, as you mentioned. And I think, and something that both of you mentioned um, is political education, and that was a really crucial way to kind of pull me further into the movement, some of the first work that I did in NYC DSA as well. So it's, it's always interesting uh, and uh, fun when uh, stories overlap between uh, uh, me and, and our guests. Uh, I always enjoy that. Um, and it, related to political education is um, Marian mentioned before the the socialist feminists or Marian said sock fan, but to our audience, it's the socialist feminist reading group. Uh, and uh, so, like, what role did uh, the socialist feminist working group play in kind of um, pulling like Lux magazine together? Like, how did it emerge out of socialist organizing? What's the mission statement of the magazine, and who is your intended audience? Uh, Sarah, maybe if you want to jump in first, then Marian just add anything that you like. Sure. Well, the most obvious thing is a number of us met in the Socialist Feminist Working Group. And something we were really interested in is I had the impression early on that sometimes um, socialist feminism might seem like sort of an add-on to socialism, you know, not not really the core of it. And that's uh, not really correct. <laughs> and it was really important to me to show people who were coming into um, the socialist feminist group for the first time, look like the very definition of work in the socialist tradition um, is what it is because of feminism. For example, being able to recognize what happens in the home and what happens in the community as forms of labor and not just wage work as labor, which gives you a lot of insight, right? Because capital is always trying to, um, take its costs and put those onto working people. So, you know, cut back the state, 
you know, don't give any help to people in the reproductive labor of, you know, staying healthy and raising a family and so forth, but put that back onto the family, you know, put that into unpaid work. And so a feminist analysis, that's just one example, but gives you a lot of essential tools for understanding what's happening in the world. And so socialist feminism is a core and and very fundamental part of the socialist tradition. And all of those ideas and organizing history and so forth is a legacy that rightfully belongs to any socialist, any feminist, and has to be made visible um, and usable. Um, Because since, you know, maybe the 70s, when these ideas were prevalent, you know, the books go out of print. Um, The articles can't be found anymore. I mean, a lot of intellectual work on the left lives as long as the movement lives, as long as there are people using it and passing it around and talking about it. And when the movement is weak, as it was, you know, until maybe a decade ago, um, or even less, that that work falls away. And it's not as visible and people don't know where to find it or how to relate to it, how to use it. And so a big part of the magazine is, you know, how do we, um, how do we, you know, deliver this, this big legacy into the hands of people who can, who can use it, just us, our comrades. And, you know, the flip side of that is the magazine reflects back, you know, socialist feminists as a major constituency and part of the left. Um, so that, that's just sort of a, a piece of it. But I think we want this both to be, be a useful tool within the movement that both um, you know, reports on what's happening and feeds stuff back into it that's useful, and to be a gateway for people to come into the left who think of themselves first and foremost as feminists. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with, with all that, and I, I think Sock Fem in a lot of way, or the Socialist Feminist Working Group. I keep using jargon. The Socialist Feminist Working Group is a way for people. If you're a feminist and you're in New York City and want to get involved in DSA, you might use our working group as an entryway. Um, you know, the social service working group has never really operated in the same way that other working groups do, and that a working group will kind of be a clearinghouse for all these different campaigns. And what is a feminist campaign isn't necessarily an obvious one because you know everything is a feminist issue in a way. The healthcare campaign existed in the social feminist working group for a long time. So now we've just taken up different causes that people who are often women-identified people, uh, queer, gender, non-conforming, and and non-binary people feel are important. That's become prison abolition and it's become abortion access. And the work of that working group has really been to push a feminist perspective within DSA by doing different, not so obviously feminist campaigns. And I feel like Lux is the same way in terms of being an entry point into the the left for being a space for people with these identities to write about and read about issues that are important to them. So so that's another parallel I see between the working group and with our our magazine. And maybe I should just throw in an explanation of our name, which is meant to sound like a classic women's magazine. It sounds like a luxury magazine, Lux. Um, And actually is short for Rosa Luxemburg, who is one of the most creative revolutionary thinkers to ever work in the Marxist tradition. And of course, it also means light. And 
um, part of the, the framework of the magazine is we're making this thing that sort of looks like the magazines a lot of us grew up reading. It is, it's really gorgeous. It's, um, you know, it has full page photography and profiles and it's written like a magazine and not a journal. Um, and it's, it's really, really beautiful but it's full of socialism. <laughs> and so we, we really wanted to make the magazine that we wanted to read. And this format is legible to all of us for better or worse from the time we're teenagers. Um, but to, to use that as a way um, in the door to all of this sort of radical work. I mean, socialism can and should be beautiful. So I think it's it's a perfect way to put together a magazine, and it's I'm I'm really happy to see that you are kind of, uh, not in not in a kind of a bad way, but you're alluring people in to uh, Rosa Luxemburg thought, which we should all be engaging with all the time. I completely agree. One of the the most critical and creative uh, thinkers in the history of Marxism. But uh, first, I just want to remind our listeners that you are tuning in to. Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting in 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Today, we're talking about uh, Lux Magazine, a new socialist feminist publication that is bringing together sex with class. And uh, Marion, you were kind of hitting on this in your, in your last answer, but I want to dive into this a little bit more. Um, in what ways uh, do the articles in the first issue of Lux kind of highlight the ongoing organizing work in the socialist movement? Why is it so crucial that uh, socialist feminist analysis informs not only the struggle for maybe what is often sort of marketed as women's issues like abortion rights, but also the fights to defund the NYPD or the fight for Medicare for all? Yeah, thanks for that question. There's a lot of really good stuff on there to touch on. Um, I guess some of the articles that immediately come to mind at the beginning of the magazine, we have a really good teacher diary um, that Sarah worked on um, that is written by um, Mary Elena Marchetti, who's also a member of the Moore Caucus, the movement for radical, for r- radical educators. And she talks about how truly hellish it's been um, going back to school, the status of her different classrooms, the fact that she's not able to give enough of, the, of her students the time and energy and resources that they need the struggles of working with students in front of you and needing to keep a distance and students online. And I could go on. Um, we have a really good, um, interesting interview with Ariella Thornhill on sex ed for socialists. And Thornhill is just a really interesting um, parent and a writer um, who talks about these really tr- tr- tricky things and pleasure and teen riots Um so those are just the hand. Well, those are two of the articles that immediately come to mind. Uh, in addition to that, we also have a good profile of uh, Kinga y- y- Yamada Taylor. That is a profile I've never seen of her before. I feel like it provides a lot of really interesting color on her life and her background and her journey into becoming this really big, um, influential writer that she is now. Um, and then we interview another um, uh, organizer, which is by our comrade Cheryl Rivera, who's also another DSA member and SOCFEM member, um, who in- interviews um, at Shea Butter Femme on Twitter and gets into uh, her struggles to be an abolitionist organizer online. Um, 
So those are a handful of things. Uh, Sarah, I don't know if you want to jump in. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's a lot of the good stuff. And there's, I would mention, we have a piece on rape and reparations in Mexico, which is a story that is about um, a pretty ugly case um, or pair of cases um, in which two indigenous women were raped by soldiers. Um, but what they did in response was to demand um, reparations for the entire community. They considered it an assault on the community as a whole. And through the piece and through their actions and, and the work of our reporter, it's about what it means to seek community reparations for an individual act of violence. And what's interesting about it is some of the thinkers mentioned in the piece are the same thinkers we're turning to in the U.S. to think about defunding the police and taking that money and, you know, spend, you know, giving it to the communities who have been harassed and attacked by the police. You know, people like Miriam Kaba um, are influential all over the place. And so taking this almost case study of how this has played out um, in Mexico versus the U.S. And, you know, it's, it's a really good example of how we can learn things in the States as feminists and as socialists from people who have been attempting this in other places and in some cases gotten much further than we have. Um, and also how some of the thinkers here are feeding back into work in other places. And so we very much want to situate ourselves in that international context. You know, I don't think there's enough communication internationally among socialist feminists, and it's one of the, the best ways to, to develop our strategy. Um, I also mentioned there's um, a piece on, um, sorry, there, there are so many, but <laughs> we have a number of pieces, a couple of pieces on abortion, and one of them is a translation of this 1971 Italian feminist manifesto, which has never been translated before, it's by Maria Rosa de la Costa, who is a major figure in the Wages for Housework movement. But this is about pregnancy and abortion. And what's so amazing about it is the language. In the U.S., we've gotten used to a sort of um, milquetoast language that sort of says, you know, we, we, you know, it's only fair to us that we should have control over our own bodies. And what they're saying is very 1970s. It's much more in line with a a confident language of, you know, free abortion on demand. And what they say is, you know, we will put as many children on this earth as we want, whenever we want, but only when we want, and proceeds to describe the total insufficiency of modern gynecology and medical care and so forth. And it, the language is, is just electrifying. And it actually has a lot in common in its analysis with the reproductive justice movement in the U.S., which says, you know, only when we want, yes, we want abortion rights. But the point is that the state needs to pay for the reproduction of human life. And we, we are, the experience should not just be one of choice, but of comfort. Yeah. Oh, and to add on to that, Jack, the second part of your question of why we think it's really important that, or to take a feminist analysis to issues around um, abortion and prison abolition, Sarah's point about the reproductive justice movement and how it's about um, having having the amount of children we want to have on our own terms, why it's really important to have um, a socialist analysis to abortion specifically and not just um, a feminist analysis is because 
as socialists, we're able to recognize the way that gender, race, and class intersect, how people are able to become parents, and then connect that to having different access to abortion, um, the resources you need to affirmatively have a kid, who has the institutional support in terms of race. We know that those things are very unequal. And why we think it's really important to have a feminist analysis to um, defund is that we know as feminist women are impacted by the violence in a lot of ways, um, police violence, uh, things like this Say Her, Her, Her Name campaign are really important because women, trans, gender non- nonconforming people are killed and assaulted and victimized by the police as well. Um, they're targeted in a lot of ways, and this becomes um, invisible. We hear about the um, statistics, but individual people don't often become the kind of um, uh, the, the kind of the, the figures that a movement is kind of hung on top of. Not to mention, um, in the in, in the, the magazine, we do have, like Sarah mentioned, a few pieces on people who survive uh, gender-based violence, and we know that the state doesn't protect survivors um, or punish, um, you know. Um, abusers, I guess. So those are two um, other ways we think our analysis is, is, is really important. Oh, and I just have to say, Marion has an incredible piece in the issue, which is about the public response to Vicki Osterweil's book, In Defense of Looting, is a really important perspective, given that the protests this summer were frequently demonized on the basis of you know, allowing looting or, or somehow, you know, creating a situation in which there was looting and this came under a lot of fire. And Marianne has a pretty incredible piece on that. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. Um, that book was such a, a good read and really important and the way that Osterweil um, connects um, the history of slavery to private property and watching liberal pundits um, try to take it apart and really just get so horrified that someone would defend looting at all. Um, Sarah and I were having a really good conversation about this a couple of, of days ago, about how um, anarchist Vicky in particular tends to be ahead of the curve and right in a, in a lot of ways, and that the rest of us are kind of catching up. So I feel like that that, that book is really important. I was happy to write something, why I, uh, something on why the critics are getting it wrong and what about it they're getting wrong. So excited for that it's it's always fun to to talk about um how the liberals uh, are getting it wrong uh <laughs> and critique them and <laughs> uh after hearing about all the incredible uh, content that you have coming in this first issue i kind of just want to hop off the air and, and read the magazine but we've got <laughs> we've got another 25 minutes left in the show and i you know we, we want to keep it flowing to get as many people to check it out as possible um and i just um we're we're gonna we're actually gonna postpone we're gonna we were thinking about opening the phone lines halfway through the show but i think the way this conversation is flowing we'll we'll save that for the the last 10 minutes or so but i just want to remind uh, our listeners that they are tuning in to revolutions per minute on listener sponsored wbai in new york city broadcasting at 99.5 fm and streaming on your favorite podcast app today we're talking about uh, lux magazine we just had a really great summary of what's uh, coming in the uh, the first issue, and I think there was there was a lot of really really compelling things that you were sharing about how this kind of this approach that you're taking, which is really really centering um, 
all these uh, these working class women, or and it also are really more broadly considered non cis men. This perspective and how it needs to be placed at the center of socialist politics, and particularly because of um, the way that um, women and and uh, transgender people in general, the non cis men, fake. Face a particular form of oppression, and I think it's it's undeniable that we need our working class media to be centering that, and that's something that we like to be doing on WBAI as a whole. This is a station that is about centering the voices of the most marginalized communities um, in this city, bringing them onto the air, talking to organizers who are engaged in struggle and building power. We want to be having um, media institutions that are rooted in the struggle. So. Uh, please, if you can, become a WBA buddy by uh, going to WBA.org and just making a, a monthly donation. If, once you reach $25 throughout the, if, throughout the year, you also become an eligible listener member to vote in the local station board's elections. This is another thing that makes BAI different than corporate media if you're t- listening or something that uh, acts pretends that it's for the public but is really dependent on Bill Gates' donations like NPR. This is we have a democratic structure here, and when you become a, a donating member, you become part of the community and you become empowered to push forward change at the station. Uh, so please go to WBAI.org to become a buddy. And I just kind of build off what uh, both of you were talking about um, in describing this upcoming issue. And there was there were so many compelling points there, and I think kind of um, if, uh, especially around this this notion of like not just having this defensive uh, mechanism as feminists about um, bodily, bodily autonomy, but more kind of it, it's about power. It's about challenging the power of of capital and the state to to dictate the reproductive um, lives of women and being able to. I love the line about it being able to choose how many children you have or if you have children at all. That this is inherent right. It's and it's about it's a. It's about power and something, another kind of element of power struggle that we've seen. And, and it's also seems to be hit upon in this upcoming issue. Uh, Marion, you were talking about, there's uh, an article that's going to be uh, on more and kind of the, the struggles that are happening in the New York city public schools over the COVID reopening. And that there was a lot of fights by this kind of uh, socialist rank and file caucus within uh, the UFT to push back against these reopenings that, you know, won some gains, but ultimately the schools did reopen. And we also have seen in recent years a large number of of teacher strikes across the countries or threats of strikes that have won demands. Uh, in Chicago, we've seen both of that over just the past two years alone. Um, and then also in the healthcare sector, we're seeing uh, a lot of um, working class activity. And we could go beyond this to the sort of um, women's strikes internationally, where in places like Chile and Spain, you had women hitting the streets, refusing to do domestic labor. So like over this past decade, we've we've really seen that the most militant and organized fracture of the working class have been workers in education and healthcare. Why has there been such an explosion of working class self-activity in the feminized care sector? How can social reproductive theory help us understand why this essential labor is devalued under capitalism? And what do these struggles mean for the labor movement moving forward? Um, Marion, if you want to take that first. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think um, it, it, it's, it's really true that it happens to be these these particular fields that are the ones acting up. And I guess why it's um, the, the, the feminist sector, the first thing that, that comes to mind is the, te- the, um, the nurses wearing 
trash bags because they didn't get enough uh, PPE. And one wonders why this field that's so important, these people trying to keep us alive, why don't they get the resources that they need? I think because it is a feminized field, maybe the assumption is that, you know, women won't um, step up and push back or the assumption that this is care work. It's not as important. It's okay to, to, for austerity to keep happening over these things to keep getting cut. Um, and, uh, related to that, um, the teacher strike before that in the city, what's happening now with a lot of people pushing back against this ad- ad- administration, which has just made a lot of like confounding choices with regard to teachers and parents and schools. It definitely goes back to um, a lack of respect that's really tied to gender in a lot of ways. And I think two nurses and teachers are inspiring one another. I was reading something recently from a nurse who was talking about how the teacher strike impacted her and the people that she um, is organizing with. And she made a comment like, it's not as simple as um, the, the nurses looking at the teachers and saying, oh, look what, what they did. We should do the same thing. But it was more about them kind of subconsciously seeing people decide to fight back and win and doing illegal strikes and seeing, oh, it's possible for us to not just win for ourselves, but we can raise the wages of other workers around us. So I think that the, the teacher strike in a way opened up so, so much of this and created this political space where you can argue for a kind of fight that you thought you couldn't be for and a lot of people will get behind you. Um, uh, so those are the, the, the two things I think of with regard to what's happening in the labor movement, that it's really interesting how they're inspiring each other. And it's really interesting that, that it's these kinds of fields that are the ones who have reached such a critical point where they now have to push back. Yeah, and I think to take a really meta approach to the the same thing that that Marin's describing um you know since the uh 1970s real wages have been falling and typically you know we've gone from the sort of ideal of the family wage where the man goes out and earns a wage that covers a family to the you know two earner household where both people are supposed to go and work for wages and i want to be clear that the family wage was never a real thing for a huge number of people but that was the sort of idea that was how it was sort of supposed to work um now everybody works one if not more jobs and the same amount of care work that was being done before has to be done now And then with austerity, not only is that care work still being done, the state isn't helping. There's no universal child care. There's no universal health care. There's no universal elder care. You know, everybody takes care of these things themselves. And it's disproportionately women who do that work. And everybody is working for wages all the time, often with unpredictable schedules and for way too little money. And so what you get is women as sort of the shock absorbers of capitalism, where, you know, capitalism will just push as much work onto people and take as much time from people as humanly possible. And women have been absorbing the difference. And so I think, you know, all over the world, women are at a serious breaking point. And one of the interesting things about that is not only are women fighting back and going on strikes, whether in unions or um, 
you know, in sort of marches and sort of looser social movement structures. But because women tend to be, for all these reasons, very aware of community needs, that's been reflected in the demands and the organizing work. So you have the teachers in the Chicago Teachers Union, for example, who have been incredibly visionary, demanding not only um, benefits for themselves, but also for their communities, saying, you know, our, our, our kids that we teach can't learn if they're not fed, housed, and clothed. And we demand that as well. That's part of education. And so I think when you see so many women and non-binary and queer folks at the forefront of all of these movements, one part of it is, you know, they have a real recognition of, of what the community needs are and how interrelated they are. I don't think it's any accident that, you know, like the demands of the defund movement are saying, you know, we need to defund the police and then we need to put the money towards, you know, education, housing, healthcare, public transportation. And then you look at, you know, the reproductive justice movement, um, which less surprisingly, perhaps, led mostly by by women and queer folks as well. And they're saying, you know, we need um, funding for reproductive justice. And that doesn't just mean abortion. That means housing, you know, for people to live in, education for those kids, um, health care so that people are healthy, both mothers and children and the whole community, public transportation so people can access their health care. All of these movements in the end are asking for the same stuff and have a really clear perspective on how interrelated those things are. And I do think that's related to gender. Mm-hmm. Oh, and just to, to add into that, Sarah, while you were talking, I, I remembered um, a tweet I saw um, and it was, it was accredited to like an actual scholar, but I don't remember who, but it was something like women are the vanguard of the proletariat which um, is like, you know, like a reference to Marx, but it's also a good point that the most active working class struggles in the world today are being led by women for all the reasons that you said, an awareness of the community and what's needed. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think that's just, uh, it's not, it's not an ideal statement. It's just a clear fact that the, the, the most militant and active uh, sectors of the working class fracture of the working class are, um, sectors that are dominated by women and women are taking the lead and uh, fighting these struggles. And even if we kind of take it up to the political uh, space, like so many of the kind of uh, in the U S the most famous socialists out there, like AOC are are women, you know? So it's, I think in so many different ways, women are taking the leading role in this movement and to ignore that um, would be foolish. And I think you both kind of uh, really did a great job kind of, articulating like why this is the case like particularly in this historical moment that as sarah was hitting on this kind of the collapse of what you know as as you explained was never kind of the full reality but enough of reality for enough of people kind of this family wage this austerity that's been implemented and what what marion was really um getting at it, I think, in an interesting way is like this fundamental contradiction between the, the the common sense reality that anyone should recognize that obviously uh, 
teachers and healthcare workers are are foundational to living in our society that we could not get <laughs> we could not go every day without them and then kind of taking that next level what the work that um, moms do and uh, other forms of domestic work that is tends to um, be put on the backs of women and how this is kind of the basis for society and how this how this work is completely devalued by capitalist production and exchange value. It's, it's just a really an absurd contradiction that was really radicalizing to me once I kind of fully came to grasp it. Uh, and there are a couple more questions that I want to ask the both of you, but I just want to let our listeners know that we are going to be uh, opening up the phone lines, and now is a great time to start calling in with about 10 minutes or so left in the show. So uh, that number is 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. So um, before we get to some of the callers, uh, something that I was kind of, I was hitting at in, in the pitch for the station, but it's something that I, I it's not an advertisement, it's something I believe wholeheartedly and uh, spend a lot of my time doing is is the importance of working class media institutions and having these institutions really actually rooted in the movements themselves because i think we've uh, we've maybe uh, i don't know how much both of you have been paying attention recently but i think we've seen the consequences of when you have kind of um left media personality celebrities that have no real attachment to actual socialist politics and kind of the what that can lead people to pursuing uh, really nonsensical um, strategies and the so like why is why is it so important to have working class media institutions socialist media that is rooted in the movement uh, Sarah if you want to take the first stab at it well first of all I can't imagine what you're referring to but second of all um, you know the it's important that the media institutions be somewhat accountable to movements. They're independent um, in a sense. You know, you send a journalist out to look into something. It's informed by your perspective on what's important. You know, I don't think there's any such thing as neutrality. But you know, there there's independent work being done there. And at the but at the same time, if you yourself, if the people involved with the magazine are not involved um, in any sort of political work themselves, things become sort of abstract and, you know, it becomes about you and about boosting sort of yourself or your project. And to us, you know, what what's interesting about this project is, well, can this magazine be contributing to what's happening? Not can this magazine, you know, lead what's happening, but this magazine is part in a, of an ecology of the left. And we think that it serves an important purpose. Um, but for us, you know, we're involved in these, these different sorts of organizing efforts and struggles. And so, you know, if, if something in the magazine misrepresents something that's happening, um, or seems wildly out of touch, we're going to know about it because we're among our comrades and we're going to hear about it. Um, and it's going to hurt the credibility of the institution. And so, you know, I, I do think that level of accountability is important. Um, and, you know, I, I think the most interesting left thinkers have always been simultaneously involved in organizing, in doing politics. 
And so those two things feed back and forth to each other. And you can't do one without the other. You can't always be organizing and never take a moment to think. And you can't only be doing theorizing in your head and not testing it in the real world. You must have both. Otherwise, things, yeah, float off into the stratosphere. Yeah. I mean, I think Sarah just put it so, so, so well. Um, uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think, you know, when I do see kind of people who think of themselves as being a part of the, the left adopting ideas that I think are counterproductive or are tactics I don't agree with, at times it's because when you are a media person under capitalism and it's your job and it's your way to survive, you might get captured by a capitalist, capitalist kind of logic of needing to get likes and clicks and making a spectacle and your goal becomes to promote yourself and grow your following as opposed to actually winning political projects because you become your own like brand and your own project. And I think with Lux, um, well, the fact that for us, it's really an organizing project too. Like we've definitely talked about different ways that we want to build community that we want to do reading groups. We've talked about organizing a capital reading group, possibly reading groups where we read the magazine or we have a lot of like fun, good things to come that are also going to be about community. But, um, and I think like, two, for, like, for example, you know, like, um, us on the editorial collective, we do it as a labor of love, which is a fraught term. Um, our writers do get paid though. So I think those are some of the ways that we're kind of resisting being co-opted and being captured by capitalist logics that kind of capture other left media projects. Yeah. And I think the fact that both of you are, are engaged in organizing the, the, what, um, what Sarah was emphasizing. It's the, uh, the only way to kind of escape. And Marion, you were talking about this, this logic of, of capitalism, the, the only way to fight back against the imperative of competitive accumulation is working class organization. And I think media is no different in that regard. And we do have uh, one, at least one caller, on the line that I want to get to. And I just want to remind our other listeners again, that number is 212-209-2877. So we got a caller on the line. You are live on uh, Revolutions Per Minute on WBAI. What's your name and what's your comment and or question? Yeah, um, my name's Hannah. I'm from Queens. Now, um, I, I see they talk about political realm a lot. But what this country is getting away from and what we are as a country, which is not a democracy, it was a republic, you know, Article Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution make that clear. So when, when you're fighting something and you are um, led another way as a democracy, this is where you think that um, the president has all the power, which... In a republic, nobody has uh, what the founding fathers were scared about was a man leading another man. I mean, if you if you read the um, the Federalist Papers, they would tell you that a man cannot lead another man. So the thing being is for them to say, okay, what happened in the Capitol? Oh, it was a coup. How can it be a coup when we don't have a democracy? It's impossible to overthrow because you overthrow and take over the presidency. And we have the Electoral College. So 
the thing being is, I don't understand why everybody keeps on saying this is a democracy when and this is the problem we have and this is the division we have. We're not educated enough and to see that we're in a free country, okay, and the um, Nancy Pelosi, Donald Trump, the, are, are public servants. So if they're a public servants, how can you make a coup against a public servant? It's impossible. So this is why these other groups are taking um, um, everything away from what country we are. You know, it has nothing to do. I mean, everybody should have a constitution. They should know what the constitution says. They should know. I, what I, the I, I appreciate. I appreciate the call in. Um, I mean, I don't think we have the time. And uh, I thank you for those comments. Um, but I, I, I don't think we have the time to do kind of a full deep dive into um, some of the points you're making about the constitution. But I, I think we also have to recognize that this the constitution is not some sort of holy document that we have to. I'm not saying that's what you're saying. No, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the comments, but um, and I'm, uh, I'm not saying that it, um, I'm not saying you said it was a holy document, but the reality is that one, the constitution that was created um, in 1787 was in many ways revolutionized during the American civil war. Um, the, the class that dominated American society from the quote-unquote founding until the Civil War, the, the master class, the slave power, however you want to describe them, were overthrown in the national government. And the, the construction of the, the Constitution was shifted in that moment. And, and it's again been changed through various other struggles like the Civil Rights Movement. But I also don't think we should you know, constrain our political thinking along those lines. Um, we only have a, a, about a minute left. Uh, if there's another call on the line, I want to give them a chance for a brief 30-second uh, comment or so. Uh, Max, do you have anyone else? Or uh, well, okay. I, I, we, we got nobody, so I do want to give our guests um, a, a chance to, to wrap things up. I, I, I appreciate that last call, um, and I think that's a subject matter that we may be covering in the future. Uh, Central Brooklyn will be at political education. We'll actually doing a session on the Constitution and why it's bad uh, <laughs> in February. Uh, but uh, I just want to give uh, Marion and Sarah a chance to um, let people uh, kind of, how do they connect um, or subscribe to Lux? And how, what are some other ways that they can interact with Lux magazine going forward? Well, which one of us would you like to take that? <laughs> Just we Sorry, can't self-organize because we can't see each other. Um, so you can go to lux-magazine.com um, and you can follow us on Twitter at readlux and that's R-E-A-D-L-U-X um, where our beloved comrade Cheryl Rivera is secretly, now not secretly, behind our Twitter account um, being extremely funny. Um, and something I just wanted to say about the magazines we sign off is one of the premises of it is um, that uh, we should, our whole politics is constituted to go after a good life and, and for pleasure to be accessible to all. Um, and that having our eye on not just survival, but on pleasure is actually, um, 
more ambitious in a lot of ways. And so we talk a lot about like, what, what does that mean to us? What, what, what do we mean when we talk about the good life that we want and not just clawing back a little bit of that, which is our due, but, but what, what would make for a beautiful and fulfilling life. And so trying not just to, you know, own the libs or whatever, but actually put forward an image of the, the world we're going for. And there's a lot in the magazine that's dealing with that. I think that's a really beautiful way to put uh, together a magazine and kind of not just focus on the critique of capitalism and imperialism, but kind of the alternative good life, as you say, that we want to be uh, fighting for. Uh, Marion, do you have any uh, final comments? We, we got to get off uh, within the minute, but I just want to give you a chance uh, to, uh, for the final word. Um, thanks again, Jack. Um, yeah, just to reiterate what Sarah said, please check out our Twitter account. Um, we're really responsive there. Please uh, subscribe to the magazine. It's really the most beautiful magazine I've ever seen. I'm not exaggerating or saying that because I'm a part of it, but our graphic designers, uh, Sharanya and Chloe Sheffy, are really talented. They really made a beautiful thing. And I think people who do subscribe will be really happy. It's $20 for the digital only, $50 for the special launch sh subscription, where you also get a tote bag and a copy of our uh, Corrient cor zine, which is a quarantine zine which shows about how some of our comrades have been trying to survive the quarantine. And then all the great articles we talked about and beautiful art and good ideas. So, Well, I'm really looking forward to the first issue. And I just want to thank you both so much for coming on to Revolutions Per Minute. Uh, we will be back next week live at 9 p.m. Wednesday nights on WBAI. Uh, this has been Jack Devine for Revolutions Per Minute, and we will see you out in the streets. Oh,